Well, hello and welcome. This is episode five in our Burning Heart podcast series, Deuteronomy Wellness God's Way. The series was originally written for film, so do check out the videos, which are free on our website at burningheart.org forward slash Deuteronomy. But we thought we should have a podcast version too, so here we are. I'm David Ingle, the writer of the series and founder and director of Burning Heart, and it's a joy to have you with us once again. One of my favourite Bible stories as a child was the fall of Jericho. God told the Israelite army to march round and round the city walls of Jericho, and then the last time, at the signal of a loud trumpet blast, the whole army would shout and the walls would come tumbling down, which is exactly what happened. As an adult, though, I found the story of the fall of Jericho more troubling because it was part of the Israelite conquest of Canaan. And the instructions that God gave the Israelites about the conquest are one of the bits of the Bible I struggle with most. The key commands come in Deuteronomy 7, and they're pretty stark and difficult to hear. When the Lord your God has delivered these nations over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. What are we supposed to make of that? How can we square it with what we know of God's love or even reconcile it with our own basic ideas of justice and goodness? Well, that's what we're going to grapple with now. Exploring how we can still trust in God's goodness and in his love, even in the light of Deuteronomy 7. And how we can still hear his voice and meet with him, even allowing him to challenge us as we read these difficult passages. And as we start to grapple with God's commands to destroy the Canaanite nations, perhaps the first thing we need to realise is how jarring they are within the context of Deuteronomy. Our world today is very interconnected with global trade and travel, a part of everyday life. And so we're much more aware of our relationships with other nations and the possibilities and challenges of travel and immigration. You may be surprised, though, to discover that Deuteronomy actually does have a fair amount to say about this and how the Israelites were supposed to treat foreigners living amongst them. There are more than a dozen laws on this subject, with the main focus summed up in Deuteronomy 10.18, where we're told that God loves the foreigner residing among you, and you are to love those who are foreigners. And elsewhere, as Moses retells Israel's story at the start of the book, he emphasises how God explicitly forbade them to harass or provoke the people of Esau or of Moab as they passed through their lands in the wilderness. So, for all his love and favour towards Israel, God is not against other nations. In fact, as we saw earlier in the series, his choice of Israel has a missionary purpose. As he told Abraham in Genesis 12:3, all nations will be blessed through you. A promise that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, as through his death and resurrection, he makes God's blessings known and available to all people. So there seems to be something consciously and uniquely different about these nations in Deuteronomy 7. 
an impression reinforced later in the book, in chapter 20, where a distinction is drawn between normal conflicts and these campaigns to drive out the Canaanites. We know God loves everyone who he has made. So why does he tell the Israelites to destroy these peoples? Well, the text itself actually gives us two overlapping answers. The first is because of the wickedness of those nations. This is a sovereign act of God's judgment on an evil and depraved culture, a point that is made and repeated forcefully at the start of chapter 9, where Moses twice tells the Israelites, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. Now, God doesn't give us much detail of what these nations did that was so awful. In fact, the people were told not to inquire too much about it. But the one example we do have is pretty shocking. In Deuteronomy 12.31, we're told, They do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And for the film series, I filmed this part of the episode in front of a roaring fire in the garden at our home in Sussex. And I usually love fires with their warmth and heat and that ever-changing beauty. But as I stood there in front of that fire and thought about what we've just read and what I was going to say, I was actually really struggling. Because I just can't imagine it or grasp how anyone could do that to their children. It's just awful. And these commands are often misrepresented as an arbitrary and unjust victimisation of otherwise innocent people to get them out of the way so that Israel can inhabit the land. But they're not. And God wouldn't do that. Because God is a God of justice, slow to anger and rich in love. And when he acts in judgment, he does so only when there is a good reason to do so. In fact, in this case, we're told elsewhere that God deliberately delayed giving the Israelites the promised land and allowed them to struggle and suffer in Egypt as a result because he would not drive out the other nations until their wickedness warranted it. In Genesis 15, 16, we read that God told Abraham that the reason for the delay was that The sin of the Amorites, a Canaanite nation, has not yet reached its full measure. Generations later, as Moses finally points the people towards the promised land, that has now changed. The sin of the Amorites had reached its full measure. And so God uses Israel to put an end to this wickedness and to bring his righteous judgment on the nations of Canaan. It's really important for us to realise, though, that this isn't just some general licence to Israel to permit them to behave as they want against their enemies, or an arbitrary clear-out of otherwise innocent people. It isn't even a framework by which Israel can judge other nations. It is a unique and sovereign act of God's judgement on a wicked and depraved people. The second overlapping reason that Deuteronomy gives us for why the Canaanite nations needed to be driven out was to protect Israel's relationship with God. Chapter 7 verse 4 reads a bit like a warning sign. They will turn your children away from following me 
to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Tragically, we know all too well how prescient that prediction was. As the Old Testament continues, we see the people of Israel compromising their faith with the worship of the gods of the nations around them. And the result was disaster. What we call the exile, as God's people were conquered and driven from the land for 70 years. It's a tragic and depressing tale, but one that should have been no surprise to them because it is exactly what we see prophesied in Deuteronomy centuries beforehand. Indeed, Deuteronomy devotes far, far more time to warning the people of Israel of the possibility of God's judgment on them than it gives over to talking about God's judgment on the Canaanites. Throughout the book, there are scattered warnings, until at the end, whole chapters are filled with prophecies of the exile. No one who's ever actually read the whole book of Deuteronomy could ever accuse it of bias against the Canaanite nations because it uses exactly the same standards to judge Israel as it does them. Why though? In the history of God's dealings with the world, both the destruction of the Canaanite nations and the exile for Israel are unusual and exceptional. There have been myriad other nations and societies that have done equally horrible and wicked things, but who God did not stop and judge. Now, the Bible is clear that that will one day change. There is a final judgment at which all people will answer for their lives. So, in some senses, all that's happening in these two examples is that God's righteous judgment on them is brought forward into time but why? Well, the answer that Deuteronomy gives comes in chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. If Israel had been just another nation, then maybe God would have left the Canaanites and then later the Israelites, simply to face judgment at the end of time with all the rest of us. But Israel was not just another nation. They were a people holy to the Lord, set apart to be in a relationship with him, and so that through them he might ultimately save the world in Jesus. And in order to fulfil those purposes for the blessing and salvation of the world, God could not let Israel simply descend into sin and idolatry and their relationship with him dissipate into nothing. And so he acts. He intervenes within history and brings his final judgment forward in order to protect his relationship with Israel. It's a message that is repeated again and again. For instance, in Deuteronomy 29.18, Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. In one sense, you could say that an answer to the question, why did God judge the Canaanites, is because he loves you, because he loves me. Because without this moment of judgment, the whole history of Israel and God's salvation plan for the world would have been derailed. And yet, still, we struggle. I think we do have answers to why God judges and drives out the Canaanite nations, but most of us still just don't like them. 
And so this is where we both need to dig a little deeper and allow God to challenge us. I think that intellectually, probably most of us can accept the logic of the two answers that I've given to this question. But emotionally, in our hearts, most of us aren't quite there. And I think that the reason is that instinctively, we don't quite get why all this is necessary. It all seems too much, too harsh. And I think our issue here is actually less about the Canaanites and more about God's judgment more generally. We tend to be okay with the idea of God's judgment when it comes to particularly awful individuals, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot or whoever. But instinctively we assume that most people, ordinary people, people like us, well surely we're okay. We don't deserve judgment, do we? Well, when we think of an entire nation facing God's judgment, however okay we may be with the idea of the leaders, the people responsible for whatever wickedness facing judgment, we struggle with the idea that the ordinary people, the women, the children, might also be deserving of it. And I think that is the root of our struggle with the driving out of the Canaanites. Were they all guilty? Do ordinary people really deserve judgment? Well, this is an issue I've explored in much more detail in our film series, Struggling with Judgment, and you may want to check that out on our website. But I do want to briefly explore it here by using an illustration from today, which is the fashion and clothing industry, which of course we're all part of, even if only as consumers. Most of us don't think twice about where the clothes we buy come from. But in 2013, the world was rocked by news that a garment factory in Bangladesh had collapsed, killing more than a thousand workers. As news of the tragedy came out, it became clear that the safety and welfare of the workers had been severely compromised over the years as every effort was made to cut costs. A process driven ultimately by the desires of Western consumers like me for more clothes for less money. At the time, most of us in the West were horrified by what we learned and by the growing realisation that our comfort, our wealth, our fashion had led even indirectly to such a tragedy. At the time, we could at least comfort ourselves with the thought that we just didn't know what was going on. And yet years have passed since then. How many of us have taken the time to research the issue? How many of us have changed our shopping habits? How many of us have done anything at all? Now, obviously not all clothing brands and fashion businesses are at fault, but lots are. And the issues still remain. One campaigning organisation, the Labour Behind the Label, sums up the situation today. Human rights abuses are systemic throughout the industry. It's an industry built on exploitation and lack of transparency. My part in all that may be small, but it is real. I'm part of a culture that is wrong, that in this area is wicked, and however uncomfortable it may make me feel, the reality is that I am guilty. And that's just one example. We could also talk about climate change or racial injustice or many other issues. But this is an example where my part feels quantifiable, and so it helps me to get my head round how a whole nation can be guilty of sin. And the Bible tells us that that was the case with the Canaanites, but on a grander scale. 
I mean, I may be guilty from the part my selfish thoughtlessness has played in the global fashion industry, but child sacrifice takes things to a whole new level. So this is a message we may not like. I think for me that will always be the case with judgment. But maybe reluctantly I've come to realise, emotionally as well as intellectually, that this judgment is just and fair and God is still good. And actually more than that, because even as we struggle with this judgment, Deuteronomy casts our minds forward, not just to God's goodness, but also to his grace. When Moses looks forward to Israel's failures and the disasters and judgment of the exile that follow them, he also holds out the promise of grace beyond judgment. There's a wonderful moment in Deuteronomy 4.29, just after he's spoken about Israel's destruction and scattering, when he says, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. For the Lord your God is a merciful God, and he will not abandon you or destroy you. It's a beautiful word of grace and forgiveness, echoed for us on the cross. And when I think of my own failings, whether in my shopping habits or care for creation or treatment of others and more, they're words of balm and restoration to a guilty but forgiven soul. Judgment is what I deserve, but grace is what I receive. But that brings me to my last point, which is that the final issue that I think many of us have with the commands to destroy the Canaanites is that there seems to be no hope of redemption. This grace doesn't seem to be offered to them. But I think that actually it is. If you read these texts about driving out the Canaanites closely, the focus seems to be less about the destruction of individuals and more about the destruction of a wicked culture. Many scholars have begun to question how total these commands to destroy actually were, suggesting that their focus was just on cities and strongholds, and possibly only then when the ruler and city in question had refused to surrender and submit to Israel. And all that seems to me to hint at the possibility that if individuals or groups were to turn away from their culture and its wickedness and look instead to God, there might be a chance of grace. And as the rest of the Old Testament rolls on, there are scattered examples, I think, of exactly that happening. And I want to finish with my favourite, taking us back to Jericho, where we began, and the story of one woman's faith. And that woman is Rahab, a Canaanite and also a prostitute. So an unlikely candidate, you might think, for becoming a Bible hero. And yet, she is. She hid and helped Israelite spies sent to scout out her city of Jericho. And she did it because she believed that the Lord was, in her words, God in heaven above and on the earth below. Which is what she says in Joshua 2.11. Dangerous as it was for her, she chose to put her trust totally in God, turning her back on the walls and armies and beliefs of Jericho and believing in the Lord. And when God brought the walls of Jericho crashing down, he saved her and all her family, not just rescuing her from destruction, but fully redeeming her life. 
She married Salmon, one of the leaders of the tribe of Judah, and became one of the ancestors, first of King David and ultimately of Jesus. It's a story of hope and salvation, even in the midst of wickedness and judgment. As we finish, let's pray. But this time, I don't want to lead your prayers. I want to encourage you simply to come to God with whatever struggles you still have with these passages, but also the ways he's challenged you. Pray, come Holy Spirit, and ask him to work in your heart. Come Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.